Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Wow, so as we were singing, suffering children are safe in your arms. I'm, I know the song, but I wasn't expecting that in light of the news that we've been seeing. Terrible, terrible things, right? So hard things, but I do want you to know that every child over there in Israel who were brutally killed, that as they passed from this life to the next, that God welcomed them to be with him. And so, terrible for us in our world, but those children are safe with him. Um, so our, our, the, the, the account we're going to look at in the scriptures today really is closely connected to the kinds of things we're seeing in the news today. And that was not my plan when I originally scheduled this out, but boy, it's certainly uh, it's hitting home for me. Uh, we have Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus. Was, he, Tarsus is a city in southern Turkey, and uh, he grew up for a fair amount of his life there and spent some time later in his life there as well. Um, he, he grew up in a very Jewish home, very Jewish home. Uh, his, his parents were Jewish. They, they taught him all the things, the, the basics of the law. And he showed himself to be a really apt student. I mean, he, he got it. He was understanding it. He was living by it. He, somehow or rather, he, I don't know, we don't know the specifics, but he ends up being able to be in Jerusalem studying under the rabbis there as a, as a young person. And so he stays there, in fact, under one of the most famous of the rabbis at the time, Gamaliel, who actually shows up in the book of Acts another time or two. Uh, anyway, so he, he was just really studied. But what was interesting about uh, Saul is not only did he know all of the things about being Jewish, he also understood the Gentile culture. Living up in Turkey, he was surrounded by Gentiles, non-Jews, and he understood them. And we see him from time to time quoting literature or poetry from the Greek culture. And so he was very well-rounded in his religion. Now, at some point, he leaves Jerusalem and goes back to Tarsus, whether he'd been sent there on purpose by the, the Jewish leaders or whether he went home to take care of family business or whatever the deal was. He was not in Jerusalem during Jesus' ministry. So he isn't running into to Jesus. He isn't hearing these things, experiencing these things. In fact, he doesn't show back up on the scene until maybe two or three years after Jesus has been, you know, died and resurrected and his, you know, all the things we've been talking about so far have happened. So he comes back into uh, Jerusalem and he's hearing about, I mean, I don't maybe heard about him before, but the point is he's really hearing the whole thing. He's hearing from the Jewish religious leaders and how this is a problem. This teacher, Jesus, who they thought was dead and now the disciples are saying is alive and, and it's just, it's not going at all the way they wanted to do, for it to go. And Saul gets caught up in this because they're telling this Jesus, he's blaspheming God. He's turning people away from, from the law of Moses and Judaism, you know. He's, he's a heretic. 
And Saul, I kind of get the idea, he's kind of like David and Goliath in the sense of when the, the armies of Israel are all holding back and fearful of Goliath and, and David comes and says, what? I'll deal with it. <laughs> I'll fight Goliath. Well, here the Jewish religious leaders are kind of at a loss. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to handle it for sure. And, but here's Saul and his personality and his commitment. He says, I'll handle it. I'll handle it. And so he begins his active opposition to Jesus and Christianity. And I want to show you, uh, take your Bibles and let's turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, that's page 1262. And let me encourage you. If you don't have a Bible with you or you don't have a phone with an app in it and you're following on the Bible, to, to pick up one of those Bibles in front of you and follow along here. I think it will be helpful to you. We're on page 1262, Acts chapter 7. And what has happened here is one of the first deacons in the church there had been preaching the gospel and it, it you know, rankled the the powers that be, and so they call him before the council, and he, you know, he shares his testimony, talks about Jesus, talks about Israel, everything that God has done, and the end of it, they are so upset with him, what he said, that they want to kill him. And so let's pick up in verse 57 of chapter 7. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So here we are, we're introduced to him. First time we're introduced. And so he is there and kind of almost like overseeing this execution. And we go down to verse number, uh, or chapter eight, verse one. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. The apostle Paul will refer to that later in his testimonies because if, if you don't know, and some of you may not, this Saul is who we know of as the apostle Paul. And we're going to see that in our, our account here in the Bible today. But you can see this is where Saul has come to. He is so adamantly opposed. Let's go over to chapter 22. Chapter 22, and that's page 1,283. This is after he has come to know Christ and been changed, and he's having to explain who he is and what he's doing before the authorities at this time. And he says this, let's start in verse number four. I persecuted this way, talking about Christianity, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. He says both men and women because the normal procedure would be to take the men. You take the men, they figure you know, the women are, aren't gonna be an up, do an uprising. So just take, but not Paul, he's taking the men and he's taking the women. 
Verse five, as also the high priest bears me witness in all the council of the elders for whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Go over to chapter 26, another time when he's telling his story. And that is page 1289. Let's see. Verse nine, chapter 26, verse nine. Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being, here's how he describes, and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Enraged, persecuting. Doesn't that sound familiar? What's going on in the world? And the story that we see here, and I say story, and when I'm talking about stories from the Bible, I mean true stories, it's not made up stories. The story of Saul's life um, really should shape how we view what's going on in the world and responding to it. And that's not really the point of the sermon, but I just want to put that out there. So today we're going to talk about this, this story of Paul and entitled Monster to Missionary. Okay? Uh, wouldn't we agree when we say that the way that what we see in the news that it's like monsters? That only a monster could do those kinds of things. Well, that's what Paul was doing. Excuse me, Saul. He's still Saul. That's what he was doing. And we see what happens to him here and how God changed his life. So let's go to Acts chapter 9. And let's begin reading in, chapter, in verse number one. It's uh, page 1264. Acts chapter nine, starting verse one. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. What's it mean? He's breathing threats and murder. In other words, this was his life, wasn't it? When he breathed in, he thought about it. When he breathed out, he thought about it. He is just... Whatever, he's just overtaken by this. He says, so Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Damascus is a city 170 miles away up in Syria. And so he must have received word, right? Oh, there's Christians up there, gotta go get them too. I mean, he is just out of control in some sense, but very much under the control of wrong beliefs. Verse three, as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, let's stop. He, this, this bright light, and he talks about it elsewhere, shone on him and so much that he fell to the ground. And he knew this was God. 
I mean, all through the Old Testament, when we see the glory of God, it, it, can, uh, it contains this idea of this incredible brightness of light. And we're going to see that he loses his sight because of the brightness of this light. Anyway, so he hits the ground and he says, this is God, what's going on here? And he hears this voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, so in Saul's mind, this doesn't really immediately compute, right? Because who's he persecuting? Those blaspheming followers of that crazy prophet, Jesus. That's who he's persecuting. But now God has knocked him flat on the ground and saying, why are you persecuting me? And so Saul responds, verse five, and he said, who are you, Lord? I got to think when he asked that question, he was afraid of what the answer was going to be. You know? He said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So stop there. I'm Jesus, the one that you are persecuting. Can you imagine being Saul? At this point, what is going through your mind? I'm zealous for God. I'm out persecuting. I'm going to kill these Christians for God. I'm going to get rid of them for God. I'm doing all of this for God. Paul had this zeal, didn't he? He was zealous about these things. And, but he had what he later on describes the Jewish people as, as having a zeal, but not according to knowledge, not according to what's really true. But he's doing this, he's persecuting, and now all of a sudden, he has come face to face with God. He knows it's God, just like I'm looking at these bright lights, right? He knows it's God, and then he hears that, wait a minute, this God is Jesus. I, you know, I, I don't know what went through his mind, but there had to be a little bit of, uh-oh, right? Oh, much more, I'm sure, you know, frightened and passionate than that. And so he, it's interesting. The, oh, Jesus says here at the end of the verse five, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. The idea is the cattle prods, they would have a sharpened pole sometimes, and when the cattle wouldn't want to go, they'd poke them, poke them to get them to move in the right direction. So what does this tell us? I mean, God is showing up here and talking to Saul right now in this place, but God has been what? He's been pursuing Paul. The, the things that have been going on, maybe as he watches how these men and women respond when he you know, throws them into prison or when he has them killed. We know that Stephen, we didn't look at the, the whole story, but when Stephen, how he died, all these things that God kept prodding Saul, kept poking him. And he, like cattle don't want to go, kicked back at it, okay? And he just kept going. So Jesus said, you know, you keep kicking against this, but here's the reality. I am the one that you are persecuting. I am your God. Verse six, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And later on in the accounts we hear that they heard a voice, but they didn't understand what was being said. Verse eight, then Saul arose from the ground and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. He was blind, completely blind. 
But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. He is so overwhelmed, understandably, right? He is in complete darkness now, unable to go and do anything. This one who was so strong and so powerful is now brought down so low. And so he doesn't even have an appetite. Won't eat. Won't drink. But I would say to you that the Apostle Paul came to Christ at that moment on the Damascus Road. When he came face to face and realized who Jesus was. I mean that Jesus was indeed his God. He was God just as he had had taught and preached. And, and so he has come face to face with that. I'm sure Paul knows the message and all this, but we see him do something that I think tells us that he was converted at that moment. Can you look at that and think what it might be? So in verse number six again, so he trembling and astonished said, Lord, Now, when he first set it up in verse 5, he was using the word Lord as just a word of respect. Because that word can be used that way. It's like, sir, who are you, sir? He might have been meaning Lord because he thought this was God, but he didn't know for sure. But by now, when he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Do you remember Jesus' challenge to uh, his followers in Luke chapter 6? He says to them, why do you call me Lord, Lord? Remember what he says? and not do the things that I say. Because if I'm Lord, you should what? Do what I say. Pretty clear. Well, what does Paul here say? Lord, what do you want me to do? So I am convinced that it's this very point. Paul is saved, he comes to Christ, he believes, but there's so much he doesn't understand, he doesn't necessarily have a clue how am I supposed to respond beyond saying, your Lord, what do you want me to do? I have, I have messed this up royally. What, do you, what should I do? Okay. And so the first lesson I want us to see today is this, that salvation and lordship are intertwined. They're intertwined with each other. But back in the days when I, when I came to Christ and I'd hear preaching off and on, different things that we're involved in hearing. And somebody would, you know, we'd really try to challenge everybody to say, yeah, maybe you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, but you haven't, you know, you haven't submitted to him as Lord yet. You haven't received him as Lord. You need to receive him as Lord. And really, I understand the point they were trying to make, but that's bad theology. Here's the reality. When you receive Jesus as Savior, you get Jesus as Lord. You understand what I'm saying? He is Lord. It isn't about me making him Lord. I need to yield him as Lord, yes. But he is Lord. And so the choice is, am I living like he's Lord or not? Am I obeying him? Am I following his word? Am I seeking to, to know him and to, to be changed, to be like him? Uh, these things come together. And so when we, we pray to receive Christ as Savior, if that faith is genuine... That means that we have really come to grips. I mean, so here's the Apostle Paul come to grips with, wait a minute, you're God? What do I do? Okay. 
we come to grips with the fact that, yes, he is God, he is holy, and I am not. That I have sinned against that holy God, and that, that sin has condemned me and will condemn me forever in hell if something doesn't happen, if something doesn't change. And, of course, what changes is that, that Jesus came, the Son of God, this one who Paul realizes is God. He comes to earth and lives that perfect and sinless life, dies on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, rising again from the dead, offering to us, if we will receive Christ as Savior, put our faith in him, you know, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and his presence in our lives that will never leave. And so... When we come to that point and understand that, that I am lost. I remember when I did it, I was trying to pray, trying to do religious stuff, and I finally just had to stop and say, okay, God, I know I'm not saved, I am lost. I came face to face with that and understood that. It was at that point that I can turn to Jesus and receive him as Savior. But the idea is what's happening here, it isn't just an intellectual thing, okay, I'm gonna believe this. No, it's a, help me. Here I am, I'm lost, I need you. And so I surrendered myself to him. I didn't say those words, but that's what I did. And that's what we all have to do if we wanna have a relationship with the Lord, okay? And so this idea of surrender, why would we surrender to him? Why wouldn't you just take the gift? It's because he's not just savior, he's what? Who is he? Lord. And if he's Lord, we ought to do what he says. And so that puts us on an entirely different path for the rest of our lives. You know, when Jesus saves us, and we see it here in the life of, 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 of Saul, who will be known later as Paul, when he saves us, he, he changes us profoundly. I mean, deep down inside, he changes us. And then we gotta work that out into our lives and lots of things to grow and understand, but he change, it's a profound change. This, this change we're gonna see in, in Saul, is it gonna be a profound change? It already is, okay? And, and then he changes us practically. In other words, we start to change how we live our lives, the things we do, the things that we don't do. We start trying to change how we think and, and what a purpose for life is and understand. All those things change. And then he changes us permanently. Man, when he saves you, he saves you once and for all because you have you've responded to him, you submitted to him as Lord and Savior, and he's, he's not letting go of you. You may try to let go of him, but he's not letting go of you, all right? So, but this idea of salvation and lordship are intertwined, and that, I mean, think about this. Uh, James, in his letter, talks about faith and the, the kind of faith it takes to, to save us. Go ahead and put that up there, Malachi, if you would, the next verse. He says that, what good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions, okay? So, so immediately he has said what? Faith and actions go together, don't they? Because faith is so foundational, so fundamental, and so profound, all this, that it has to affect you if it's the record. And so he says, the kind of faith that doesn't do that, you say, oh, I believe, and then you live however you want. He asks the question, can that kind of faith save anyone? And the implied answer is what? No. We're not talking about an intellectual ascent. Oh, yes, I believe that. We're not talking about an emotional thing at some point in life, oh, I felt something. We're talking about where you consciously know and understand, say, I am lost, I need Jesus to save me, and God, I'm gonna trust you. 
I'm throwing myself on you and your mercy. And we've surrendered to the Lord at that point. And that's the kind of faith that saves us. Very, very important. And then, so that becomes our whole life, surrendering, growing, telling, becoming more and more like Jesus in so many ways. All right, let's continue reading. So Saul is blind, he's not eating, he's not drinking, and he's waiting, because God said, go to the city, someone will tell you. Someone will tell you what to do. It says, now there was a certain, verse 10, now there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So this is interesting to me here because God could have had, you know, recorded whatever parts of this conversation he wants us to record. But we see he's talking to a Christian and he says to Ananias, what, what's the words here again? God just says his name, Ananias. And he says what? Here I am, Lord. That's the way we ought to live our lives, isn't it? these Christians. Here I am, Lord. Here I am, what do you want me to do? This is what Samuel did when he was told to do as a child. Lord, here I am, I'm listening, what do you want me to do? So this is the way we ought to be living our Christian lives. We can't just live haphazard Christian lives, bumping along, going with the flow. We have to become conscious that Jesus is our Lord and that that means something in our lives. It means something when we have decisions to make. All right, let's go on. Verse 11, so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. Interesting street name, the Straight Street. And inquire at the house of Judas, this is a normal Jewish name, inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. So God has given, Saul is in darkness and not eating, not drinking. He is so overwhelmed by where he is at and what the reality of his life has been and wondering what it's gonna be now. And the Lord gives him a vision. There's a man named Ananias who's gonna come and pray for you. Okay? Verse 13. Then Ananias answered, uh, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Is this the guy you're talking about? You want me to go? Now he did say again, Lord, am I getting this right? Very understandable. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, I love that. He didn't say Saul, he said what? Brother Saul. This one who had been opposed to Christ and Christianity and the Christians and had them thrown in jail and, and even killed and, and now he is a brother. What's the difference? Jesus. Jesus is now his Lord and Savior. That's the difference. And all of us who've received Christ as Savior, we are brothers and sisters, aren't we? 
So verse 17, Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, here you go, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. And we'll see more about that in a minute. Now, a question for you. Why, why, so God appears to Saul and does this. Why doesn't he just tell Saul, okay, let's, let's get this right. Here's what I want you to do now. I want you to go out and do this and this and that and go do it. Instead, he blinds him and makes him wait on a Christian from the church in Damascus. Why does, why does he do that? Well, I think Paul desperately needed to make a connection with other Christians in the church. That was part of what he needed now. How was he going to change? He needed that. He needed their love and acceptance because man, he probably wasn't gonna give it to himself. Right? And he needs them to be a part of his life and working. And what we see here is that this is the way God works. He works through his church. He works through us as individuals all the time, but he also, there's things that he does through his church. And so God here with Saul says, okay, you gotta connect with the church. You gotta meet these people. They gotta be a part of your life. In fact, they are part of how I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do in your life. So, Second truth here for us, the importance of the church's role in following Christ should not be undervalued. I mean, God could have just done it, but he doesn't. He says what? No, we're gonna do this through the church, through my church, through my people. We're gonna do that. And you know, every one of us needs that. We all need a church family. We, even if you don't know everybody, you know, when you come here today and you worship, I bet, if, in fact, look right around right now and, and notice someone that you don't know. Go ahead, do it. Okay? Now, don't look too long, it'll be weird. <laughs> but here's the thing. Those people that you just looked at and noticed, you don't even know them, but do you understand that being here together because Jesus is Lord and worshiping him and, and looking to the word together that that changes you. It grows you. And how much better when you know those people and they know you and they're concerned about you and what's going on in your life and you're concerned about them and what's going on in your life and together you're trying to become who God wants you to be and together then we are able to do what God is only planning to do through his church. It's through his church that we are to come and, you know, we, we are challenged to surrender every week. We come in. It's his, in his church where we grow to be like the Lord because you've got to interact with all these people. And none of them are, have it together as much as you. But we need each other, right? And, and then we, it's from here that we go out. He gives us the great commission individually and as a church that the, the, he's entrusted the gospel to us and this is how it gets out to the whole world, through churches like ours, where it's a little small church meeting in a house somewhere, it's a big church meeting in a huge building, or it's kind of like us in between. We are his people, we are his church, and we ought not to undervalue it. And you undervalue it when you 
Think, well, I can take it or leave it. I don't have to go to church. I can still be a Christian. Check, box, true. You cannot ignore the church and not let it be a part of your life and become the Christian that God wants you to be. That is impossible. Now, I'm not saying it has to be this church. If God leads you to another church, go. But you need to be in his church. You understand what I'm saying? Is that coming across? You need it. And so I think you really want to look at your life and say, wait a minute, am I really valuing this church the way I ought to? And I was even kind of caught up in, and I do not ever want to cross over and to start making rules for you that are not in the Bible. I don't want to do that. And so sometimes I, maybe I don't say some things I ought to say. But that's why when I made the announcement today about the women's craft thing, and I don't care whether you come to the craft thing or not. What I do care about is do you care about those other women, your sisters in Christ. And you can care about them and not come to the craft thing. You understand what I'm saying? But that's what I'm concerned about. Men, the same thing, right? So activities are a great way, and maybe you're already, but the idea is we need to be in the church for our sake, but for the sake of others, that together we might become the body of Christ and we might look more and more like Jesus. And so that it, what happens is what happened in, in Mark, I think it's Mark chapter four, when it said, Jesus was in the house and people were coming and it was getting full, they were listening to him as he was teaching and talking. And it said, when word got out that Jesus was in the house, the crowds came. And I just gotta wonder if, what would happen is if in our communities, you, the communities where you live and where I live and we're in together, if word got out that Jesus was here. Is he here? Is he? He is. That's right. He promised to be here. But if word could get out that Jesus is here, who knows what God might do? So the church is extremely important, and that means you need to be connected. You need to be thinking, about how do I connect? And if you're just going through the motions and you realize I'm just going in and out, and I'm not, then do something about it. Connect with somebody somehow. Come ask someone, how do I do this, if you don't have a clue? Most of us have a clue of what we could do to be connected. All right, let's continue. Verse 20. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Now that's the personality of Saul coming out as well as the Holy Spirit certainly work, right? But what does Paul do? He's zealous. He's a zealous guy. Now that he knows the real truth, he's even more zealous. He preached the Christ in the synagogues that he's the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He's on fire. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. This is just such a different world, isn't it, for us? What we see in, over in the Middle East right now and, and this kind of thing. Most of the time we don't plot to kill other people, do we? In fact, I can't think of one time in my life I've ever done that. <laughs> but they did that, so right? Hey, what goes around comes around, Saul. You reap what you sow. Verse 24, but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. So they sneak him out of the city, because the Jewish leaders there were looking to kill him. 
Verse 26, and when Saul had come to Jerusalem, so he goes back to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. Surprise? No surprise. They remember this guy. What a cool thing he's trying to do now. But Barnabas took him, and we haven't gone through every part of Acts, so we can see that Barnabas is the one who really stood out as an example of selling his possessions so that the, the needs of other believers could be met, and he has that kind of a approach to life. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenists, but they attempted to kill him. And I guess I'm laughing, but it's really not very funny, is it? When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. They sent him 600 miles back home. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. A couple more things that we, we need to see here today. Think about Barnabas. What motivated Barnabas to take a chance? Because would it make sense that this Saul is now pretending to be a Christian so he can find the rest of us? Wouldn't that make sense? And that's why they, they're on hiding. He's trying to find him. They, they're making sure he doesn't. But Barnabas, somehow or other, connects with Saul, listens to him, hears his story, believes it, and then brings him to the apostles and to where he's now, at least progressively, somehow accepted by them and is now involved in ministry with them. But what, what was it about Barnabas? And, and I would say it's a challenge to us if we want to be like Barnabas. As Christians, we need to believe the best about people. Go ahead and go to that slide if you would. As Christians, we must believe the best about people. This is what love requires. Now, we're not talking about being stupid or in denial, was there reason to be concerned about Paul? Excuse me, Saul, was there reason to be concerned? There was reason, okay? But Barnabas somehow rather, rather than running with his fears, said, God, are you doing something here? He somehow rather saw Saul the way God saw him. And when we see people the way God sees them, it changes. We can, you know, have be motivated by love with them. Because let me show you what love does. This comes out of 1 Corinthians 13, a description of this kind of godly love. Go ahead. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Bears, you got to put up with some things. Believes all things. Hmm. So, were the disciples there when they're in hiding and not going to go on Saul, were they being motivated by love? I can't really speak to what was in their hearts, right? 
But what I would say to you is that love starts off believing. Believing what's being said, believing in the person. And I don't mean that in any kind of humanistic way. I mean believing that God you know, can be at work in the life of this person. Believes all things. So let me say this. I, I think that the reality, we look at scripture, there's, there's, there comes an end to this, at least this aspect. You, you bear all things until you cannot bear it anymore. And then you ask God to help you all along the way. Believes all things until you can't believe it. Somebody tells you something. Has anybody ever told you something? And you say, okay, I'm going to believe you. And then they let you down. They, you know, they betray your trust. Yeah, that, we've seen that happen, right? And they come back and say, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Will you trust me now? Whatever. Ooh, I don't know. Love does what? Believes. And so love teaches us to believe the best about people until we can't. Does that make sense? And, and people in your life that you don't, you know, you don't want to have anything to do with. You know, every one of them is made in the image of God. And there's something of value there to know and see if you can get underneath all the junk. So this is what love requires. And, and it's really a fleshing out of what Jesus taught and what is uh, called the golden rule. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. Right? Go ahead and go to that if you would. It's called the golden rule, right? So here's Barnabas. I mean, I don't know again what the other disciples were thinking, but here's Barnabas thinking maybe, how would I want to be treated if I was this man? I don't want somebody to give me the benefit of the doubt. That's what I would want. How about you? How about if you've, you know you've messed up? How would you want people to respond to you? By writing you off and saying, that's it, done with you? Or would you like them to say, hey, I'm kind of worried about this, but let's work on it. How do you want to be treated? Treat other people that way. Just do that. Man, the world would be changed if we did that, right? So this idea, it, it can get messy, get really messy. And you, every time you love, you put yourself at risk. You do. But the risk is worth it. Even if it get hurt sometime along the way. Love endures all things, right? So let's look at that again. 1 Corinthians 13. Go ahead. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And that's the way we need to treat people. Okay. And we are really out of time here. But I'm not out of sermon. That's a preacher's malady. But we're going to stop there. And I say to you, we need to take our faith very, very seriously. He is Lord. Okay, he is Lord. We need to value the church. You need to look at your life and say, man, am I really valuing the church? What would my life look like if I really valued it? And then we really need to love people, even those that are hard to love, and, and believe the best about people until it's impossible to do so. Isn't that the way you want to be treated? See, that's it. Father, we thank you for your word today. And I do pray, Lord, for those, as we talked earlier about what it means to receive your son as Savior. I pray that if they have questions, Lord, that they would ask and we can see them come to know you. Or even right now in their hearts, Lord, they can just say to you, oh God, that's me, I believe, I trust. 
Father, help us then to live this out in our lives, to take these things very seriously, take our relationship with you very seriously. So that you might be honored and glorified in our lives, Lord, and help us to see that when we do that, that is when our lives are absolutely going to be the best, the most fulfilling and satisfying and meaningful and purposeful when we say yes to you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, so glad that you were here. Our Bible studies will begin in about 25 minutes out there. We'll be talking about anything related to Israel that we need to talk about or want to talk about as well as other faith questions. And over here in this room, uh, if you want to come and pray for the prodigals in your family. God bless you.